Welcome to the On Country Podcast. I'm Mark Woling. I'm an ethnoecologist and research fellow in Indigenous Ranger Programs at the University of Western Australia. The On Country Podcast is where I bring you stories and interviews about the people involved in managing Australia's vast cultural landscapes. It's based on my desire to not only document the incredible history of the Indigenous Ranger Program and IPA programs, but also the work that continues to be done by both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to meet the many challenges we faced on country. Before we get started, I'd like to emphasise that this podcast is separate and independent of my research at UWA and all views expressed are my own or those of my guests. This podcast is coming to you from Noongar Wadjuk country and is proudly presented by FrioCast, an independent not-for-profit community radio and podcast station created and run by a group of dedicated volunteers based here in sunny South Fremantle, Western Australia. My guest this week is Dennis Rose, a highly respected Gunditjmara man who has spent his entire career working to both manage country and improve the lives of all Indigenous people. He played a catalytic role in developing the National Indigenous Protected Area Program and as far as we know, was the first environment and natural resource management based Indigenous ranger ever employed way back in April 1982. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, Dennis, uh, welcome to the On Country podcast. And uh, just before I pushed record, well, I was just asking you uh, because me being an old, an old uh, boxer, an old fighter, is um, I was asking you about Lionel Rose. Yes, well, as I said, I usually tell people I taught him how to fight, my cousin, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's not true, of course. I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, yeah, Lionel's father and uh, my father were, were cousins. Uh, they're both from Framlingham Aboriginal Mission at, near Warrnambool. Um, Lionel's father was one of those people, and there's quite lots of people from Western Victoria that were shipped over to East, East, Eastern Victoria, Gippsland in particular, um, and vice versa. So we've certainly got family over there that uh, we've got connections to there. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was up uh, doing a, a, a lot of work with the Nyamal Rangers last year, and I was um, uh, doing a bit of training at, at, uh, at China's Boxing in Port Hedland. He was his name's uh, Louis Q uh, Ming, and he he actually did a, a um, a demonstration uh, fight with uh, Lionel in uh, in Melbourne, and that was oh, his right. one of his claims to history to um, claims to fame, which was interesting. Look, but if, um, before we get going, I thought um, we're going to talk about your uh, in- involvement with the Indigenous Protected Area Program and and what we think uh, is your possibly the first Indigenous in- ranger ever, and and also. Um, in terms of the environment side of things anyway. But before we get going, um, talk to me a bit about uh, your, yourself and your background. So you're a Gunditjmara man, and um, for people who've never seen your country, describe your country for me a bit. 
it's a very rich country, um, and uh, I'm, I'm good in Ichmara, as you said. It's a very rich country, uh, very productive agriculturally, uh, which was one of the problems initially in the early days of colonisation uh, when our lands were taken from us. Uh, the land was that rich that uh, the um, European wave just happened very quickly. Um, so we were displaced as a mob uh, quickly um, and suffered the consequences for, for some time. Um, we have a few different parts of country. We talk about having having four, four, four mirroring or country, um, the, the forest and the river uh, to, the, to, the, to the west of Gundishmara country towards the South Australian border, um, stone country, which we have our Budgebim uh, lava flow and our World Heritage, Budgebim World Heritage, cultural landscape, um, we have sea country and we also have uh, f- just general forest country as well. So rich cultural history through there. Again, the uh, Budgebim was listed uh, on the World Heritage List for its uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, aquaculture system that's still in existence today, 6,600 years uh, scientifically accepted date. Um and uh, we also have extensive uh, middens in the coastal areas, particularly from Portman across to uh, to the South Australian border in what they call Discovery Bay Coastal Park. Uh, very rich, you know, in excess of 500 recorded sites. There's just shell middens right through and other other uh, other artefacts as well. Yeah, and, and your language is the Dawood Wurrung is. Uh, it, was there much language still intact, um, sort of post-colonisation? Where I know at the mission, um, your your elders were sort of um, forced not to speak language. Um, how how's that sort of side of things going in terms of cultural pre- preservation? Yeah, look, I think like uh, quite a few things. Again, we were displaced uh, very quickly, um, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, there was active active. Uh, Lost the word there, Mark. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, there was active. Uh, I think people were forcibly told not to speak, weren't they? <laughs> I think that's that's been polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are records in the archives uh, of the mission days where you know Jack Smith was caught talking in his native language and had his rations cut for two weeks and things like that. So, look, we are piecing back together again. You know, we still have people who can speak. Parts of the language. Um, I wouldn't uh, think that we we have fluent speakers over you know over quite a large number of words, but it's something we're we're working on. We are working closely with the, the local schools to uh, to in, uh, and we have introduced a uh, language program. So uh, all these things are, are getting putting the story back together again as best we can. Yeah, yeah, and and leading on for that, so. Um I mean, just a final uh, question around just describing your country. So, I mean, you've um, been you're now chair of the uh, Country Needs People, and and you you've uh, tra- you worked with the Commonwealth Government with the IPA program, uh, and so you travel quite a bit. So, when you return home, and uh, you know these meetings and travel can be quite stressful. When you return home, what's your why do you have a special place you go to, or a special place you like to go to to reconnect and just get some quiet time? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate. I actually live on the coast, um, so the, the, the coastal areas uh, are very nice um, and uh, they're always, you know, I have a, a little spot down at a, it's a popular surfing spot called Crumpets that I like to uh, drive down there, just pull up, listen to the waves crashing in for a while um, and uh, think about things in life, I suppose. But uh, it, it is it is a, a good place. Also, Budge Bim, um, Although it's you know I probably work out there more than uh, more than I do with uh, the, the coastal areas, but uh, Budgebim also has that um, that sense of calmness. I think I like to get out on a out on country on out on Budgebim on the lava flow on a Saturday or a Sunday at times where there's no one around, there's no time pressures on you, um, and uh, again just to, to soak in the the, the country, but. Uh, it's all all important country, the uh, Bacara or Glenelg River uh, to to the west. Um, again, it's one of Victoria's, if not Australia's, best kept secrets in terms of a magnificent waterway. Um, and uh, I do go fishing there a bit. That's uh, again, I talk about uh, my KPIs are about going fishing. If I catch fish, it's a bonus. But uh, just to, to spend some time on country is really good yeah look um, I, I'm a, an old surfer so um, I, I have been through that country and uh, on the coast and it's, it is spectacular I did think about actually living there at one point so where where were you born Dennis and where did you grow up yeah I was born in Portland um, I never lived at the mission uh, my mother and father both did in their earlier days uh, but the mission was in the process of being shut down when I was born um, so I lived just uh, my early years were just up the road from the mission um, and uh, lived there for about four years, I think, and then we shifted to Hamilton. My father shifted there for work purposes. Um, I started school in, in Hamilton uh, and then uh, we shifted to Melbourne for a while. I think I was in Melbourne from about 1961 to 1965, which was a, an experience in itself. Uh, we lived in Paran, which is a very predominant uh, Greek population, so it was an interesting uh, mix of mix of people. Um, and uh, from there, 60, 1965, we shifted back home, back to Hayward, uh, where I lived until uh, I left school in, um, in the early 70s, 73, went to Melbourne for a while, then uh, for a couple of years and come back home. And what did uh, your dad do? My father was primarily a truck driver, drove trucks for most of his life um, on the road, a lot of interstate trucky, so didn't see a, a lot of him. Um, and uh, you know, typical of a, of a trucking family, they're, uh, they're on the road for five or five and a half days a week, then come home to have some peace and quiet, get some sleep. Um, so, uh, yeah, didn't have a, 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 lot of, um, a lot of interaction with my father. And unfortunately, he liked... His brothers and uh, like many of our our mobs around, well certainly around here, but certainly around the country, died much too young. He died at fifty years of age. You know, his brothers were you know, 38, 42, 46, 52. and the oldest the oldest brother made it till he was seventy two, and uh, it was interesting at his funeral that uh, a lot of our mob were saying, "Gee, what a long life he lived, and how great that was." And a lot of his white mates were saying. He was much too young to be to be dying. So, again, that um, disparity uh, with with health health outcomes is 
is painfully obvious. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. It's um, and I was, I was going to ask. So, what was it like for you and your family, and particularly you, growing up as a sort of young Indigenous man? Because I know, I mean, we're going to get to your um, taking on the role as the ranger, but I know in a conversation we're having last week, you're saying even one of your Indigenous colleagues didn't want to identify as being um, Indigenous, and and this I remember as a young young white fellow, that was certainly the case. Uh, back in the the uh, late sixties and early seventies, as even as a kid, where um, there was still very heavy discrimination. Yeah, look, I think um, I I always talk about not really seeing any uh, overt or direct uh, discrimination until I was, you know, in my early twenties. Um, I'm, you know, looking back, I'm sure that uh, uh, myself and my family were. Were subject to uh, some some of those more uh, subtle, if you want to call them, call it aspects of of racism. But um, look, I, I I always consider it a very fortunate life. I I've had a, a wonderful close family, uh, my extended family. Um, you know, the aunties that looked after me and, and still continue to do so, uh, even after all these years. Uh, their support, uh, their love. Um, was great, you know, and then and then we had uh, you know our own mob, but also you know we we were friends with lots of lots of kids in in the you know in and around town, um, played sport together, went to school together, fishing together, scouts, all all sorts of things. So I I, I had I've had a, a fortunate upbringing, and uh, um, you know things were tough, but they were tough for lots of people. Yeah, that's right, and. Uh... Uh, you know, f- f- when I was a kid, uh, things were pretty loose, you know, it's a different time and, and uh, we all got pretty feral and just sort of were roaming around at at a will really because both, both my parents were working. And was that a similar thing for you? Like you and your mates were kind of just starting to get a bit loose and getting out and getting wild or? Uh, not too wild. I, I tried to tell myself that I was, you know, relatively, uh, relatively sensible, I suppose, but... Um... Oh, look, you know, we, we had a lot of fun together, I think. I reckon that was it. And, you know, sometimes it might have crossed the boundary a little bit, but um, you know, certainly as a, as a teenager, you know, 15, 16, sort of that, that, that area, we used to do a lot of rabbiting. We'd go fishing. We'd, we'd do lots of things together with mates and cousins and uh, and whoever else and, and mix with a, you know, a bit of a range of people, I suppose, over the time. Yeah, um, th- there's there's a question I'm I'm going to ask you, and and I've I've been struggling with it about how to ask it, and um, so I'll, I'll I'll give it a go and see 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 uh, how how we go. Um, so I'm really interested in how people are connected to to landscape, um, and as you know, like I I spent a long time working with the Pindaby in the Gibson Desert, so more than a decade out there. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of years on country just with people and people often will have long periods of silence. And um, and after some years, I, I became really attuned to that la- landscape and you could almost feel like a hum or a vibration would be there. Uh, and people think I'm a bit crazy when I say this, but others who've spent similar amounts of time on country talk about the same thing. And and so the old Bill Nedgy from up in the top end, he described it as that, that feeling for country, and and so um, 
the way I'm trying to ask this is so when my kids were little, were quite small, I remember both my son and my daughter um, might have been t- two or three and they're walking along and all of a sudden they're looking behind them and, and they just discovered that they had a shadow, that their, their shadow was attached to their physical body and they, they couldn't get away from it. And it was just this really uh, moment of realisation about this, their material being in the world. And I'm just wondering, as a, as a, um, as a young man, um, did you have a moment, particularly because you were living in more urban areas, did you have a moment where your sense of you being belonging to country come to you? It's almost like discovering your shadow, or was it just present through your mentorship, through your elders? Oh, it was a bit. It was a bit later in life, I think, for me. Again, uh, I think I go back to uh, the late sixties, early seventies. That, uh, in fact, up right through the seventies into the eighties, that we had very little access to country uh, that we have today. Um, we've been through high court cases. We've been through native title. We've uh, land acquisitions for a variety of reasons over the time, but. Back then, we didn't have access to country. Um, we'd go fishing, you know, we'd go to some of um, Dad's and Uncle's favourite fishing holes if we had a, a friendly farmer that we knew or we knew that the farmer may have been away, for example, on holidays or uh, whatever. Um, so, you know, we didn't have that access to country that we have today or, you know, we had probably 20 years ago. So, look, for me... Um, Again, I I lived away for quite some time from uh, 1984. For me, I lived away from 1984 and I never returned back home until uh, 2003 and never returned home until 2002, uh, although, you know, I visited quite obviously, but um, to spend any time there. So there was a, a getting back, home in 2002 was really important for me um, because well, I was able to enjoy the the country that we'd, we'd had returned to us. I was able to understand uh, the scale of what, what our Gunnachmara ancestors actually built out there. You know, I did visit a few of the fish traps, for example. I did know about and did see some of the stone house sites, but until I come back home in 2002, I never realised the extent of it. Uh, it's just a a complex bit of country. Um, it's very subtle country as well, I think, Budgebim, um, even though it's, you know, jagged rocks and, you know, all really rough country, but it's it's a very subtle landscape. And uh, as I mentioned before, I do used to still like to get out there in the quiet times when it's not so much work, it's just about getting out there and and soaking it in, I think. You know, I think that's, that's really it. Um, yeah, it's it's time, isn't it? And listening, just just that stillness on country, and it, it just change. I think it changes you. Um, even me as a, as a non-indigenous person, I think it's it's very powerful. So I was going to talk about um, Butchbim and World Heritage a bit a, a little later, but that's let's go there now. Um, uh, it's such an. Ex- I haven't actually visited there, but just um, just looking at it from um, and, and reading about it, it's um, extraordinary. And it's, can you talk to me a bit about that a bit more and what it actually is and the whole World Heritage listing? And yep. Well, Budgebim was uh, formed by uh, the eruption of uh, of, of Budgebim, the, the volcano, 
um, 37,000 years ago. Uh, the lava flow flowed out to the west and in a fairly uh, deep uh, flow and then it hit the what we call the uh, Darlitz Creek Valley. It turned south um, and it was very narrow in sections. So in some parts the lava flow is uh, four or five or six kilometres wide uh, in other parts it's two or three hundred metres wide particularly in the southern the southern section. Um, so 37,000 years ago, it, uh, it, it erupted. Uh, the, the scientists tell us that the current, and I always have trouble explaining this, but the scientists tell us that the current um, shape and form of, of the Bajpim uh, lava flow was settled around about 8,000 years ago. So the wetlands were, were, were there um, the, you know the, the wetlands that are there now were were, were formed or finalised, I suppose, about eight thousand years ago. So when we talk about uh, budge bim and, and the world's oldest aquaculture system, for example, we we don't expect that there there are many aquaculture sites, fish traps that are older than that that six and a half thousand years. I mean that's old enough anyway, of course. But uh, um, yeah, so. Out on, on the lava flow, again, as I mentioned, stone house sites. So we built stone houses. When we talk about stone houses, they were pretty much a, a stone foundation around about a, a metre in height or a metre and a bit um, in, a, in, a, in a circular shape, circular pattern, um, and then uh, 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 timber poles were, were bent over and... Uh, uh, hut was built sort of on the top of it. So one of our properties, uh, our Lambie property, um, we have uh, recorded uh, 146 stone house sites. So we're talking about having a village out there. In fact, um, you know, if you start to think about maybe 100 house sites and if you're talking about three or four people per house, um, you know, you, you're starting to talk of, you know, a, a village or a town or whatever we want to call it of, of you know, five to 600 people. Um, That's incredible, isn't it? And it just makes you completely reimagine uh, how Indigenous people lived on the landscape, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I, again, I'm going to take people out on country. I tell them uh, that, uh, you know, there are plenty, there are many lava flows in Western Victoria, Western Victoria and into South Australia, uh, very rich volcanic history over many many, many thousands of years. Um, but Budgebim is the only one that has the, 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 the stone house sites, these fish traps of, of, of any scale, and it's because of the great water supply. It's the only reason it is. There was a very rich life there. Um, the water was, uh, in fact, I called it Darlitz Creek before, but its traditional name, uh, the waterway through Budgebim is, is uh, Kalara, and it means always there and it's quite appropriately named. It's never gone dry. Um, there are other rivers that join up uh, with Kalara, um, and, uh, the, you know, the, after a dry summer, there are not much more than stagnant pools or just a trickle of water going through them. So mm-hmm. Budgebim provided that great resource for people to, to invest time, for our Gunditjmara uh, ancestors to invest time, effort, resources into these more permanent uh, structures had the stone there. And, and used to, uh, your people used to weave these incredible um, eel traps too. There's some amazing photos of those. 
That that's correct. Look, uh, we we talk about, and uh, you know, it's been recognised by Engineers Australia that what our ancestors achieved out there was an engineering marvel. It was engineered. It was modifying the natural environment uh, to to enhance, to increase the uh, the, the productive capacity of, of country, in particular fish, and, and particularly the uh, the kuyang, the uh, short finned eel. Which is which is which has been recognised. As I said, uh, Budge Bim has been recognised by Engineers Australia as a, a national uh, engineering uh, heritage landmark, um, uh, similar to you know the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the uh, Snowy Mountains Hydro Scheme, for example. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's extraordinary. Um, so look, we're, we're, we're going to come back and talk about that because it relates to IPAs because that was declared as an IPA um, some years later, but. Um, when you're, let's talk about how you got to the Victorian uh, National Park Service and and that that journey. So, how did you uh, come to be a park ranger? It's a bit of a long story, a bit like my uh, got, my got, professional. Have we got time? It's a, bit of a long, <laughs> it's a bit of a long story, a bit like my professional career. I just happened to be, I think, in the right place at the right time. At times, I was um, at that time, just prior to that working with Aboriginal education and we, uh, myself and a, and a non-Indigenous uh, school teacher, were, were the, um, worked on, worked on you know, improving kids uh, being at school and all that sort, those sorts of things. What we were finding was that we were getting children, Aboriginal kids, Gunditjmara kids through school, but then there was no jobs after that. Um, so we embarked on a on a targeted uh, local employment campaign, we wrote letters to uh, uh, you know, the, the, the local shire council, um, businesses, uh, you know, a stonemason, for example. We had a, a, a Gunditjmara apprentice stonemason. Um, the the uh, local shire employed uh, uh, one, of, one of our mobbers, uh, Kinder. Um, the local shire employed... Uh, Gunditjmara person to uh, as a trainee librarian, um, and we also got national parks, Victorian national parks, who responded positively. So um, we sent out a, a letter um, to let people know that there was a position coming up. My cousin uh, applied for it, and uh, he was a bit nervous. He wasn't long out of school. Um, he was a bit nervous about doing an interview, so. He asked me if it was okay for me to come along to the interview with him. I then rang the National Parks person up, and that was okay. So I sat in on the interview and I thought, oh, oh, this sounds like a great job, just the sort of job I was always thinking about. Uh, he uh, he got the job as a, as a trainee, uh, what they call a park assistant at the time, and uh, he did his 12 months and uh, did 12 months training and... Uh, um, it was time that the National Parks uh, Superintendent uh, rang me back up and asked if we had someone else that we might be wanting to uh, to employ. I said, give me a day. And uh, I rang him back the next day. I said, I think I've got the right person for you. I went home and talked to my wife, of course, and uh, I got the right person for you. And, of course, it was myself. So uh, that's what started off my journey. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love it. And how old were you at that time? Yeah. I was... Uh, 
I was 27, I think, or 26, I think, when I started. Um, started. I started as a park assistant in uh, Discovery Bay Coastal Park. Uh, as I said before, it's a very, an area very rich in in, in cultural history. Um, it's got all you know, just huge um, middens and uh, yeah, just a, the presence of, of of our mob that were there over again many thousands of years. Yeah, look, uh, if if I may, I don't think it just happened. I think that's your old people were talk whispering to you, sort of nudging nudging you in. <laughs> More, more than likely, and I think uh, again, some of those aunties that I mentioned before uh, uh, used to be quite persuasive in, uh, uh, you know, making sure that people moved on. Uh, you know, quite a few of them. They were just so much uh, into education, um, so strong about uh, education and getting a good education, and then utilizing those skills uh, to, you know, to, to better yourself, but also for for the mob as well. So. You know, I think I can look back over forty something years and uh, be very proud of the fact that I, uh, whilst I've you know I've been fortunate in my, my professional career, I've always had it uh, that I've been working with and, and for our mob, and uh, that's the most important thing. If I crossed the line somewhere there, I'd uh, I would have. Uh, Ran away or got chased away or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was uh, ninety. Was that nineteen eighty two when you first went to? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, nineteen eighty two. I uh, then uh, got a promotion uh, to uh, in nineteen eighty four um, to Wiperfell National Park, which is up in the Mallee. So I went from a coastal wet coastal area to a, a very dry, uh, arid landscape. Uh, had two years there. Um, Loved, loved the people up there. I had trouble adapting to the weather, though. It got a little bit hot for me. I can remember the the, the extremes of temperature that we used to have winters of uh, up there of minus eight, um, and uh, in the in with frosty nights and mornings, uh, and high temperatures during the summer of forty four degrees. So I was also playing cricket and football, but uh, cricket was. Um, yeah, it was pretty tough, I can tell you. And I, you know, I always uh, acknowledge that uh, you know to to live in the Mallee, you you have to be a special sort of person, I reckon. Um, so I'd, I'd just like to dwell a little on on uh, your, your your early time there. So um, that period of the late seventies to the early eighties was really interesting because. Um, I, I remember as I grew up in South Australia, and that's of course um, in, in at that time in South Australia. That's uh, when no fixed address was there. I started out as a as a in the building trade, but I was um, a, also a young musician. And I remember Hindley Street in South Australia was this sort of very very wild wild place back in those uh, that. that period of time and no fixed address were always playing there was these crazy wild gigs and it was the beginnings of that really strong um uh, fight for and the recognition of aboriginal land rights and around that time with uh, Gunditjmara, there was the K, the Alcoa case was in eighty two and um, which we'll talk a bit about in a minute which was uh, predates um uh, Marbo and and the recognition of um uh, ongoing rights but for you as a young man coming into park services um and in the background there's all this move the aboriginal land rights movement is starting and um how was it for you as as a 
a Gunjmara man coming in and then working on your own country, really, you're a traditional owner there. Was there any recognition of, of that or were you just uh, sort of another park ranger? Uh, look, I don't. there's certainly not the recognition that there is today. Now, again, the staff... Uh, the staff I worked with were, were very supportive uh, of me as an individual. I know our, our ranger in charge, a fellow called Bruce Waller, he certainly encouraged uh, me to, to do Aboriginal cultural talks uh, at Discovery Bay. As I said, it was an area that's rich in cultural history. Um, so uh, Bruce ensured and made sure that I did you know, holiday programs and, and did them with a certainly with the focus on, on Aboriginal cultural uh, practice in, in the country, in that part of the country. So, yes, it was, but it's a, again, it's a different time that um, I don't think that I certainly know that as Gunditjmara traditional owners, you know, the, the primacy we have now is much more than we had uh, 40 years ago. Whilst, you know, it was acknowledged, but it, it certainly certainly has increased over, over the years. So, um, I, And I, the same up at Wiperfeld, I was encouraged and able to, to do uh, Aboriginal interpretive walks there, you know, school holiday programs and stuff like that. So, Yeah, because also at that time there was uh, there's still that, um, as Marcia Langton talks about in her Boyer lectures in 2012, which I've just been re-listening to and reading, she talks about how at that period of time, there was still that divide uh, and the oppositional effect of there was uh, culture and there was um, nature and these were seen as mutually ex- exclusive and uh, particularly um, we Western scientists and the National Park Services and so forth hadn't moved to a place where they were um, interrelated and we hadn't accepted that and, and we hadn't uh, thought through um the cultural landscape and that everything is is as one and that that's a shift i think um that uh, came later with the ipa program but um so did you was this a trans a sort of a transformational time for you where you started to sort of think through these things it, it certainly was and look i, I reflect back to uh, uh after i'd uh, finished at wiperfeld i i then uh, got promoted um up to, uh, to the Murray River, but I also at the same time got a, a, offered the job with the department, with National Parks or the Department of Conservation, as it was then, um, at, uh, at uh, Halls Gap in, in the Grampians, or Gurry Word, uh, in, in um, Western Victoria. Um, I remember being interviewed for the job and the parks person was really strong about you know, what, what is a national park? Why do we have a national park? And I probably, I reckon in those days, again, that was 1986, I probably didn't give a great definition of it. And in fact, he ended up a, a good friend of mine and we used to yarn about that a bit later. But um, once I got involved in the Indigenous Protected Area Program, then I realised, in fact, a bit before then, um, then I realised that, hang on, this national park caper is, is is about people. It's about country. It's about looking after country. It's about respected country. Um, and you know, I think that I would have answered it quite differently. I'm sure that the, uh, that, that uh, my colleague probably wouldn't have accepted my answer, but I would have been much stronger about it uh, about it then. Um, again, you see the change in parks 
where it was, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there, to now it, it's it's a it's a much a much more um, uh, flexible, I suppose, in a sense that uh, there are activities that can happen now that certainly didn't happen in my day, and uh, I think I've seen that with the IPAs that it, it needs to you need to have some flexibility to make sure you've got the capacity of people in there and. Cultural burning is a really good example of that, where, where uh, certainly there was no, never any talk of cultural burning, and I'm sure Bill Gamage hadn't really uh, been heard of much, for example. But um, certainly, you know, we, 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 I think it's been recognised over the last 15, 20, 15 years at least that cultural burning and, and uh, First Nations people have a rightful role in that, and we've we've done that ourselves and many other communities and. TOs around the country certainly have, and yeah, and and it's it couldn't be more um, uh, cultural burning couldn't be more topical given we're moving into a, a, what's going to be a ferocious um, fire season, I think. Um, so let's let's talk about your move to to the Commonwealth government and um, the sort of emergence of the Indigenous Protected Area Program. Um, how did that sort of come about? Yeah, well, I uh, I put in for the job uh, at uh, I was living in uh, in Gurryward or Grampians and uh, had no intention of leaving. Um, but I uh, there was a job advertised with what was then the Australian Nature Conservation Agency, or formerly Australian National Parks and Wildlife Service. And I remember saying to my wife, "I'll put in for this job." I said, "I won't get it, but I'll reasonably sure I'll get an interview. They'll fly me up to Canberra." I'll spend a few days up there, catch up with some friends and whatever else. Um, I got a call one Monday morning uh, from a, a great friend of mine, as it turned out, and uh, a colleague, uh, Steve Zabo. Uh, he said, I had an interview Friday. I said, oh, good. I said, you want to pick up my ticket at the airport? I said, we don't fly people up anymore. Um, so I had to do a phone interview. So I had no intention of going to Canberra. No expectation that I was going to get the job. Anyway, I, I got it. So we worked on a ship started it in, in 1993, July 93 in, in Canberra with what was then the Australian Nature Conservation Agency. Um, we worked on it. We had a program that was funded through the uh, Deaths in Custody, uh, what they call the Miller Report. Um, it was a program, a little bit of a long-winded uh Title to it: Contract Employment Program for Aborigines in Natural na- Nature and Natural and Cultural <coughs> Management, um, commonly known as Sapankram. So, I worked on that for uh, a couple of years. That was again uh, an eye opener. Um, in in what sense? I think that look the the, the aim of the aim of the uh, the, the, the deaths in custody in the Miller report in this part of it at least, was about getting more permanent employment for people, uh, getting getting people into jobs um, and then uh, longer-term jobs. So we, we provided um, what we call seeding funding. We would fund a you know, state national park agency, for example, or a state museum, uh, some traditional owner groups uh, to, uh, to employ people, uh, to employ Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people only, um, and uh, getting them again that that crossover between the natural and the cultural um, uh, was was important. So it was a 
uh, it was a really important program. Um, it had lots of successes, um, but you know it possibly didn't lead in, probably didn't lead into, or translate into a lot of ongoing permanent jobs. Again, particularly with state government agencies, they were keen to take the money um, and support people, but that longer term uh, employment. It happened, but not to the probably the degree that we thought it might have or we'd hoped it might have. And so what uh, what year was this? This was 93? 93, 94, 95, and then in, towards the end of or middle of 95, uh, this this concept of uh, the Indigenous protected areas was was first, uh, first uh, discussed, um, or probably a little bit, you know, maybe in the early part of 95. Um, we held a... Uh, a meeting um, in June '95 in Alice Springs uh, was selected uh, a few uh, land councils, uh, traditional owner groups, land those that had land in particular, um, state agency representatives were there, other government agencies. I think ATSIC at the time, or yeah, I think it was called ATSIC at the time. Um, uh, yeah, so it was about just really getting people together to see whether uh, this idea of, a, of um, Indigenous protected areas uh, would would succeed, I suppose. Uh, the, the aim of the IPA program was to fill a gap in, um, in Australia's protected area network. Um, Australia at the time, I think they identified about 80-something different um, biogeographic regions uh, and some of those regions had very limited, very small percentage of, of the area in, in protected areas. Down here, um, we were in the Victorian Volcanic Plains, it was called at the time. Uh, I think it was about 1% or 1 point something percent of the entire uh, Victorian Volcanics Plain by a region was a protected area. So those areas that were very low um, also coincided with... Uh, in places at least, uh, Aboriginal owned and managed properties. Um, so it was a, uh, yeah, it was just a, it was just a, an idea that we had to, as a public servant, we had to be flexible enough um, to uh, address the concerns and, and the, the um, some of the issues that the Aboriginal landowners would be facing. Again, I think you get back to context. At that stage in the in the early nineties, was just after Marbo, um, uh, or mid nineties, uh, just after Marbo, there was lots of battles over many years to get land back, land rights acts, uh, high court cases, etc. Um, there was lots of battles, so there was a, a, an initial concern, and rightfully, and, and rightfully concerned that it might have been seen as a, as a land grab from the Commonwealth to control. Uh, vast areas of, of, of hard fought for uh, country. Um, so again, we had the responsibility and, and the honour, I think, as well. I, I certainly see that that to fashion a, a program uh, that incorporated, you know, obviously good governance with with good management, with supporting, with again being on the side of tr- traditional owners. Um, we we managed to managed to, to get it done. Yeah, and and um, I think as um, with my conversation um, with Dermot um, Smythe, um, 
I don't think people realise what a revolution this was in thinking and the conceptual shift that was required by uh, the, the the state and commonwealth agencies that manage country. Um, and it was it was something of a revolution. Um, I, actually, what I'd like to do is um, uh, just picking up on your um, mention of, of these um, the, the workshops that you that you held, and 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 the context of what was going on in the background over with Marbo, the Marbo decision and so forth. Um, so I, I know that um, the land councils and TOs at these meetings they. They they were um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that they what, there was a lot of kind of concern and a little bit of trepidation and suspicion about the land grab, and so they um, they were certainly interested in the IPA idea. But and I'm taking this again from um, Professor Marcia Langton's boy lectures. But they were subject one of that subject to a number of conditions, and so one was there would be no loss of control over land by Indigenous people. Uh, two was that landowners make the decisions and the plan of management on their own terms. Uh, three was that the role of government would remain one of a good neighbour, um, providing advice and technical support on a needs basis on matters relating to issues such as weeds and feral, feral animal management, etc. Um, that the commitment um, by government to the IP pro, pro, IPA program would be for the long term. And one which I think is really important um, is that the government address as an issue of equity Aboriginal involvement in protected area management for those groups who have no land as a result of um, dispossession. Um, so I think it's uh, it's just really important that we, as you're saying, is we, we recognise that traditional owners weren't just thinking for their own particular country. They were looking at a national level and thinking we need to think about all those groups who've been dispossessed and how they can regain access back to um, connect with their own traditional lands in their country. So is that your um, experience of, of being at the workshops? It, it certainly was. That was, uh, that was, I suppose, something that um, from a public servant's point of view probably surprised us a little bit um, that that there was this push for uh, funding or, or resourcing um, traditional owner groups to negotiate with with uh, state governments in general, I suppose, um, about potential co-management of, of existing national parks. That was an important part of it. It wasn't the main component, but it was still an important part. I think with the IPA program, I think what really needs to be recognised above and beyond everything, and particularly those words you, you were talking about, is that this is a contribution by traditional owners towards Australia's biodiversity and cultural uh, country. Um, this is it's a two-way street, as, as Dermot and others used to talk about a two-way street, um, and I think people sometimes seen it as a like a grants program that you know the government was handing out money to to do this and do that, but it needed to be recognised that it was it was just so important for Australia, for indigenous communities to to contribute their land towards Australia's biodiversity um, so uh, yeah I, I think that again I, I remember if I could probably just 
before the before the workshop in Alice Springs, um, you know, I spent some time with some of the scientists uh, that that were with part of the National Reserve System. And to be quite honest, I really couldn't grasp this concept of, of biogeographic regions and where traditional owner uh, input might fit in. But it was when we were at the workshop where the, the scientists then had to talk in in relatively unscientific language about uh, about what this is. Then the, the penny finally dropped with me. Or then I understood uh, and it was something that I was, again, fortunate to, to grasp, um, uh, grasp the concept. And then uh, myself and Steve Zabo were, were uh, uh, included in the National Reserve Systems area uh, to further develop the, the IPA program. That was to establish a, an IPA advisory group um, and also to set up uh, around about 12 pilot projects around the country just to see if the concept was going to um, work, whether it was going to be accepted both by traditional owners and also government agencies. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it was a bit of a, a, bit of a, a rough start, um, but it, it was, again, really important. I think um, again, the, other, the other important aspect of IPAs was at that time was that it was purely voluntary. And when I say voluntary, um, you know, landowners could choose to run cattle on their property, um, you know, that, that was fine, but we couldn't, we couldn't uh, you know, we had some relatively clear clear guidelines or rules about, about you know, what, what, what could potentially be a, an IPA, and that essentially meant getting stock off um, if there were other activities, commercial activities, uh, just making sure they didn't impact on uh, natural or cultural values. Um, so, but there was a very much a, a voluntary basis for for this, and I think again that's what really encouraged uh, landowners. Again, there was a, a two stage approach to declaring an IPA. One was first the the feasibility of it, you know. So again, for TOs to uh, discuss the pros and cons of what an IPA meant uh, for them. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, and, and at the same time, working up a plan of management uh, for, for country. Um, and they, they were able to, uh, it was perfectly acceptable outcome if after maybe 12 months or potentially two years of funding that a, a traditional learner group might say, oh, look, you know, we like this idea of IPAs, but it's not for us. So that was, a, again, a non-pressure, I suppose, not pressure for people to... To, to, to commit straight away to really have some you know free prior, prior informed consent you know you know in a in a in a fashion at least um, and, and that was deliberate deliberate uh, and again was what was advised by by these mobs in uh, in Alice Springs in '95. Yeah, and, and just picking up on that point you made about uh, the Western scientists, because um, my understanding is that um, when they started to map out the bioregions from a sort of an ecological perspective, um, there was this sudden realisation, oh, hang on, these, these, some of these bioregions map entirely of um, particular groups, country, and perfectly. And so they, they, there was a, a realisation that, um, well, we can't actually go ahead with this without in, involving traditional owners for these areas because they, they're the landowners for that entire region. And again, it's in that context of the... Um, 
the newly minted uh, Native Title Act and so forth. So it, it was, it was. I think that was one of the um, other um, p- pushes to, towards accepting this this new way of looking at land management and sea management. Certainly was, and there's a, a, a colleague of ours in the National Reserve System, Richard Thackway, who who really drove the scientific side of things. And uh, again, I think that the collaboration that that we had with with the science with the science on one side, and, and the public service, the bureaucracy with with ourselves, and then with traditional owner groups, uh, you know, it, it just all come together. Again, look, the, the aim. The aim of the IPA program, even then, and then National Reserve System, absolutely matched uh, by the desires in in most parts of, of, of traditional owners about restoring the health of country um, and and the health of people. So, um, you know, there was there was always this uh, acknowledgement that that you know we both had the same aims. It's about how do we achieve it, and how do we make it work, and we. We managed to, to do so. Yeah, and ab- absolutely. As you're saying, it's a um, which I think we lose track of, side of sometimes. It's this incredible partnership that's developed, and now um, the IPAs. I think it's 85 million square kilometres of the national reserve system are sort of indigenous managed, which is uh, an incredible contribution to Australia and, and managing our our country. It's um, is, uh, it's a significance that I get, it gets lost, I think, sometimes or a lot of the time. It certainly does. And I recall Australia's first officially declared IPA, Nantawarrinner, in, uh, in the Flinders Ranges in, in South Australia. Um, I remember going there uh, again in the very early days of the IPA program. Um, the, the property, I can't remember the size, it was something somewhere 60,000 hectares or something along those lines. But the property was was run down. It was overrun by, been overgrazed by sheep. Uh, it had a, a severe goat problem. As, you know, I remember driving along with a couple of people, and as you went over, so as you were driving along and, and went over a ridge, it'd be nothing to see a mob of fifty goats over the next ridge, and then go over the next one and be the same. And goats, uh, rabbits, uh, over overgrazing. Um, the country was. It was in the grip of a drought as well, it'd been fairly dry. Uh, it was in an appalling state, but you could see the potential there. You could see the potential if so. Uh, you know, once the once the, uh, the the mob from Nepabana decided to have a look at have a look at this, explore this concept of IPAs, they uh, got the the, uh, the the stock off the sheep off. They uh, trucked out the goats. Um, there was donkeys as well. I think donkeys were a problem, so they had the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia come up for a weekend and assist with culling. Um, and again, this was in cooperation with the neighbouring national park as well. So again, it wasn't just a, a standalone thing. Anyway, look, the transformation. I went back twelve months later. Uh, they'd had some rain. Uh, they'd had Khaleesi virus come through, which cleaned out the uh, or reduced the rabbit numbers substantially rain they got rid of the stock for 12 months the country was transformed and that was without really doing a lot at, at the time you know there was um so you know it, it again i think as i said it was really about aligning the aspirations the desires of of traditional owner groups with uh, the ability to fit into uh, 
to a scientific structure, I suppose. Yeah, and and um, the landscape just comes back. Country comes back. Uh, if you leave it alone, it sort of um, comes back pretty quickly. If you can take off all these um, factors that are impacting it so heavily, it's uh, it's incredibly robust. I think the Australian landscape. Yeah, well, I, I, look, I think um, you know, in some, it, it, over, 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 over the years, there's been a, a little bit of criticism about the IPA program. But if you take it back to just a very basic level, if you if you get rid of the feral animals, if you get rid of the the you know, including sheep and cattle, um, if you get do some work on on weeds, if you do some fencing, if you do some uh, revegetation, just very basic stuff. You're you're already you know improving the health of country by by a factor of, by a large factor yeah. And so let's jump to the present and your current role of um, chair of um, Country Needs People. Um, talk to me a bit about that and where the IPA program is at the moment. Yeah, look, the uh, Country Needs People is basically a, an advocacy group for both the Indigenous Ranges program. And also the Indigenous Protected Area IPA program. Um, it's about establishing, or, or not establishing. It's about uh, uh, working within government. I suppose no, it's not working within government. It's really about lobbying government to ensure the long-term uh, sustainability of, of these these programs. I think the the Again, the the, the, the the numbers in the Indigenous Rangers program, the amount of people that are actually doing, uh, you know, real work on country um, is, is remarkable. And again, those associated benefits with full-time, regular employment, uh, you know, the social benefits, health benefits, economic benefits for people, um, and all, but all mainly a, a pride in, in what they're doing and, and their contribution. So... We've been making sure that we hold the government to account to consider long-term funding of both programs. I think there's no doubt, absolutely no doubt, that they're both successful, uh, but they do need uh, ongoing uh, and and long-term resourcing. Um, It's pleasing to note that the Indigenous Rangers program, I think, is current contracts are for something like seven years or will be next year. I can't quite remember now, but uh, we want to make sure that that long-term funding is there. But all, the other important part of Country Needs People is about supporting some of those groups that might not have the, the resources, uh, the capacity, the expertise to to manage a, a, a Indigenous Rangers program or an IPA. Um, you know, there might be other, other focus for people, um, Look, I think um, something else that gets uh, lost too is just how much um, these programs are, lo- are loved by TOs, like the particularly um, the young men and, and more and more the, the women's range of programs. They're hugely popular and successful. And there's a, as you said, there's this real sense of um, pride in, in their programs. And uh, you only have to go to a, a meeting of ranger groups and see everyone walking around with their logos and country badge on and it's uh, everyone's pretty puffed up <laughs> that that that's for sure and i think the, the other beauty about the uh, about the indigenous rangers program is that it it is flexible it's it's not about full time work for everyone uh, the seasonal work part time work casual work 
um, it does it does uh, uh, suit uh, quite a number of people. Again, there's uh, certainly a, a gap in, in in some range of programs in in the number of females participating. Uh, so it's about making sure that we can encourage encourage uh, greater participation by uh, by by women in the in the workforce. Um, and uh, as you said, that that pride in in, in doing work. I we went up to uh, we had a ranger exchange at uh, Groot Island with Alan Dilliarqua Land Council uh, in in July, and uh, they had some awards there one day. A community um, it was a NAIDOC event, and uh, one of the one of the rangers won uh, won uh, one of the uh, awards, and again just the joy. Not just from her, but from the people she worked with, uh, the, the the broader community that were there, lots of school children there as well. Uh, they were all sharing uh, her her great achievement um, and and uh, acknowledging uh, you know the, the the good work that they're doing. So it's 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 really about consolidating the program now and supporting. Those communities that, that might just need that little bit of assistance, a, a push, you know, we fund uh, some consultants to, to come in. Again, uh, only on request, not uh, not uh, not pushing our way in, but we do we do have some limited funds to support communities to help them maybe put in a submission, for example, um, to to the IPA program or the Indigenous Rangers program. So it's a it's a good time we have. With the change of government, we have that commitment to, to longer-term funding of the doubling number of Indigenous rangers, for example. Uh, we applaud the government for that, and we want to hold them to account to make sure that it's implemented in a in a way that's that's manageable. It's not about just throwing a, a large amount of resource straight in. You know, today it's it has to be thought through and worked through. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the other strength of these programs is that generally speaking, they're um, politically, they're bipartisan and supported by both sides of government, and which is great. Um, so look, I, I think um, just sort of reaching a bit of a conclusion here, I, I guess we can't talk, can't go past the kind of uh, giant marsupial megafauna thing in the room at the moment, which is the voice. And um, I don't know whether you want to have a quick talk about that and your views on that. It's it's unfortunate that it's there's been such it's caused such division. Um, um, but yeah, what what are your thoughts? Look, I'm 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 supportive of the concept of, of the voice. Uh, you know, let's not pretend that whatever we come up with, whatever comes up with, is is going to be necessarily be completely representative. Um, I've seen that over. Many years, this issue about representation and who speaks for who and where is—you—you'll you, never—you'll never uh, get that right. Um, but look, I think it's really important that people make a decision about the voice—a yes or a no—based on 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 the facts. You know, some of the some of the stuff that's been pushed by the No campaign. You know, you just have to look at some of the fact-checking stuff that's happening. It's just, it's just bullshit, and uh, that's that's appalling. I think the fact that that politics have got into it as well um, is 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 no good. So, we, you know, we, I'd really like people to make a decision based on the facts as best they know them, uh, but just to keep in mind that 
but certainly the no campaign is is you know raising some pretty weird stuff. I think there was a an article in in today's paper that a some uh, some lady was. Uh, uh, there's an article in today's paper where some lady was saying that you know white people will have to pay to, to, to keep on country, which is just out and out crap. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I think and something that's why I, when I was talking with Dermot um, on the the first episode was um, I, I find the IPA program and Indigenous Protected Area program as a great analogy to how the voice could uh, work. Is is and what gets lost is the it will bring an approach which will bring consistency to government policy because as you would know better than me um over the decades when you're working in this area you see this endless cycle of programs that something just gets better down and then it changes and then you get a change of government and then another glossy brochure turns up and it, there's this change to programs so one would hope that a a constitutionally recognised advisory body would provide some consistency to uh, government policy and services. Yeah, certainly the case that, uh, again, look, you know, we see from the closing of the gap statistics that, you know, there are areas that just haven't improved or marginally improved. Uh, So, you know, again, at at a very basic level, there's nothing to lose by by having this in the constitution. It, it, I'm sure it will help. Uh, again, talking about country needs people and long term support and funding and whatever else we do. You know, we need government. We need people to be looking at the uh, the uh, the longer term picture and not just a short term political grab. And I, unfortunately, I think that's where. We're heading at the moment. I, I again, I don't mind that people say no. I do mind that they say no because of just the the, uh, the the racist rubbish that we 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 are hearing at times. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's disturbing. Look, uh, on a sort of a more whimsical and uh, sort of happier note to finish. Uh, have you? Can you share a, uh, a a sort of worst worst bush trip experience? <laughs> Oh, where's where's Bush stuff up? I reckon the, the most embarrassing one was um, out at Witchera National Park and uh, on the western side of the Simpson Desert. Um, I I'm I'm a I'm a person who likes driving. I'm not a very good passenger, and uh, we, we were with uh, John Chester in the uh, South Australian Aboriginal Lands Trust vehicle, and. Uh, John had been driving most of the day, and I said, well, I'll drive for a while. And we went to Dalhousie Springs and were camping there. Um, it wasn't actually Dalhousie that we were camping. Well, it might have been. Yeah, we went to Dalhousie Springs and we were camping there. And, uh, oh, sorry, I've got, get out, get out for a minute. Thank you. Sorry. It's all right. Family just turned up just, just then. Um, yeah, so we camped out at Dalhousie Springs. Uh, we decided to go for a drive towards, towards Perny Bore, which is to the east towards the uh, Simpson Desert. Uh, they previously had some rain there, and uh, whilst there wasn't surface water around, um, I, I just followed the tracks out there, and uh, we turned around. We got out to Perny Bore, uh, where John had actually done some work years ago uh, with a with a, uh, a mining company, um, 
exploration company. Um, and uh, we had a look around there. We turned around and I was driving back into the sun and I took the wrong track and got us severely bogged. Uh, we were we were miles from uh, from the campsite. Uh, no no radio uh, to well, mobile phones coverage, of course, in those days. Uh, but we did have a satellite phone, which was absolutely useless, as it turned out. The, um, we reported, uh, we rang, I think we rang Triple O or the South Australian Police or whatever and uh, said the, because uh, we knew the policeman from uh, Udnadatta was at the meeting. Um, he, he was there previously and he had a, uh, a satellite phone in his car as well. And... Uh, we were able to talk to his phone, but unfortunately, he was enjoying himself in the in the in in the shed with with the other fellows, and and eventually they realised that we were a bit overdue, and and they drove, and we could see the lights coming. I reckon they drove for I don't know half an hour. Um, you could just see them driving along and bouncing along, and we were very fortunate that they pulled us out, but uh, just. Absolute inattention, a really long, I'll make up lots of excuses, in, inattention, <laughs> long day, pig-headedness, uh, all, all combined to uh, to embarrass me severely. I think I think we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I know the way. <laughs> all right, look, I think that's a fantastic, um, fantastic point to finish. Um, Thank you so much for uh, sharing your uh, your experiences and your insights and your history. It's it's been really great, and uh, I look forward to, to speaking to you again at some some point. No problems, Mark. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, again, if you're ever down this way, there's a standing invitation to knock on the door, and we'll get out and have a look at some of this spectacular. Oh, that would be lovely. I'll be there. Okay. All right. Cheers. Take care. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. Listening to the On Country podcast with me, Mark Woling. And again, a big thanks to um, Dennis Rose for a great conversation. And just a quick correction that the figure I cited as um, land under Indigenous management is actually 85,000 hectares, not um, square kilometres. So sorry about that. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. The more um, reviews and subscriptions we get, then the, the more rich we have. Also, don't forget to download the FrioCast app where you can listen to more great music and stories from our incredible community. Music this week has been No Fixed Address and if you don't know them, uh, please go and check them out and have a listen. And their seminal track, We Have Survived, are going to take us out for this episode. And thanks for joining me and I'll see you again soon. Bye.